Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. These guys came up in a time of both getting credit for being feminists while talking down to women and cheating on them constantly. Uh, they just kind of had it all, and they're experts. And, and that is, you're not, you're not guaranteed the title of expert by just being a straight white man. That's John Mullaney, straight white man, describing Gil Faison and George St. Geegland. He created the characters with another comedian, Nick Kroll. It was sort of an inside joke. They are super specific. If you want to imagine the kind of guys they are, think of like an Elliot Gould character in a movie or somebody who's just on the periphery of an apartment party in a Woody Allen movie from the late 70s. Or just listen to the way that George St. Geegland describes the way that he dresses. Uh, maybe you can imagine him slouched back in a chair, peering at you over some dime store glasses. The way I, I describe my clothing is wool kimonos, so uh, large shoulder uh, blazers. And it's all, you don't realize this, people are so stupid except me. When you get carpet laid, they cut some off, and you can make clothes out of it. And his shoes are from the hospital. My shoes are from the hospital, because when I woke up there, I had these groovy shoes on. It isn't an inside joke anymore. Somehow a bunch of people seem to find Gil and George kind of familiar and completely hilarious. And now, as oh, hello, that's what they say to each other, they're on Broadway. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney will tell me why, no matter how successful each of them has become individually, they keep coming back to Oh Hello. They'll also explain why Elliot Gould and friends aside, there's really only one guy who perfectly sums up Gil and George. There are these Upper West Side sort of septuagenarian kind of guys, and uh, they have turtlenecks and blazers, and they're obsessed with Alan Alda. And that is the moment when everyone goes, got Oh it. yeah, got it. Got yeah. it. Know who they are. I want to make it clear, none of this is anti-Alan Alda. Later on in the show, Brazilian percussionist Ayrton Moreira will tell me about how hard it was to get a straight answer out of his collaborator, Miles Davis. Sometime around 1970, somebody asked Ayrton to come out to the West Coast and join a new band. He'd been playing with Miles. He figured maybe he should ask him if he was an actual member of Miles' band. You know, so that he could, like make a plan for his life. And he said, well, did you play yesterday? And I said, yeah. Are you playing tomorrow? Yeah. So he said, so? <laughs> and I'll tell you about a new hip-hop single that sort of reminds me of, like, like if Steve Reich sold drugs. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So years ago, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll applied to be in the Aspen Comedy Festival. This was before Kroll was on the league on FX or had the Kroll show on Comedy Central. It was before Mulaney was a huge stand-up comic or writer on Saturday Night Live. Anyway, the two of them had been doing these characters, Gil Faison and George St. Geegland, for a few years at a show called Oh Hello in New York. 
Gil and George, the characters, were 70-ish, the kind of guys who wear a turtleneck and a corduroy jacket and have really strong opinions about Spalding Gray. And so when Kroll and Mulaney applied to Aspen, which was the biggest comedy festival in the country at the time, they got turned down because uh, they said the act was to New York, which it probably was. I mean, it's almost absurdly New York. But they've now been doing it for 10 years. And all the way through their respective rises to fame and success, they've never tired of these two characters who love Velcro sneakers and Alan Alda. Here's a clip of George and Gill. They're going to a reading at the YMCA. The author is a former student of George's. They're flipping through the acknowledgments of her book. There's no George St. Gigman here. What? What? Huh? She left me out of a whole book. That's impossible. I'm not mentioned anywhere. And I was the reason she became a writer. Really? Of course. Look, mother, daughter, sister, wife. This is told from the perspective of four different women, just like my novel, Rifkin's Dilemma. What was that about? It's about a boyhood of a guy named Rifkin. He jerks off all day long, and I describe it. It's an unwritten novel. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You've got a lot of nerve writing a book and not thanking me, and then coming to my why? and giving a speech about it in front of my friends and Gil Faison. Oh, I'm gonna ruin her speech today. <laughs> We're gonna cap off our day at the Y with one of my classic incidents where I make a woman cry. Kroll <laughs> <laughs> uh. and Mulaney are continuing to spend their fame on these two characters, bringing them to Broadway this year. Later on, we'll actually talk with George and Gil, who are here, but for now... John Mullaney and Nick Kroll are my guests. Guys, welcome back to the show. It's great to talk to you. Hey, Jesse. Happy to be here, Jesse. Was the Aspen Comedy Festival in 2006 or whenever that was making the right call when they said that these characters were too New York? Uh, I believe the full quote was, they're too New York and they're old, and we want the festival to be young and fun. (laughs) Even though we were in our 20s in wigs, uh, it was also an age thing. I mean, I'm happy to not have gotten in because it. I have had so few boundaries in my career that <laughs> that it has fueled me. It is one of the few genuine slights that I have felt, and it has fueled <laughs> me ever since. It is a weirdly specific type of person to have dedicated so much of your careers to. I know. Yeah, <laughs> but something about it, I don't know. Well, it's... it's I mean, I guess because I'm not from New York, and I... And I knew that type of guy, like a guy like in corduroy pants and like a cowl neck sweater. It's like a peripheral character from a Woody Allen yes. movie in 1984. It's like a guy that a, a, a female character is set up with. And they go, he's great. He's an architect. And then he's got like a big butt in corduroys and a sweater. And you're like, this was attractive and his hair is oatmeal. Yeah. But I knew that type of person as a kid in the Midwest. So to me, it was like, well, surely everyone's a weird kid that doesn't go outside. And I think we, you know, so we, we just, and I, and I grew up outside of New York City. So I knew those guys both you know either family or going into the city and observing them or and and also from pop culture but then i also think as we toured we toured the show and we went to dc and boston and chicago and san francisco and uh, a few other cities and everywhere we went we would be like we're, you know we're liberal racists yeah. and 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 we would go so you guys understand that and every city had this knowing yeah. laugh these people are in berkeley yeah. they're in chicago uh, they're definitely in D.C. Yeah, they're in Boston. They're in. It's everywhere has them. L.A. has them. Everywhere has them. You know, 
Um, so I think we felt like there is something more universal to this, uh, even though it's unbelievably specific to this re- region. There was an actual inciting incident for these guys, right? Yes. We, yes. we, were, in, we were in New York. John and I both went to college together in, New York, in D.C. and then moved to New York. And we were doing stand-up, just getting going. And, and we were in the Strand Bookstore, which, for if you're not from New York, is a great, like— uh, it's Best a, bookstore. Yeah, and our joke was it was the Strand Bookstore. Their their tagline was uh, eight miles of books and ten miles of loneliness <laughs> is what we had it under. So and you lived on Thirteenth Street then, so you yes. were right near the Strand. So we so would wander around. There. We would wander around there, and, and one day we were in there, and these we saw these two older guys who sort of in that George and Gill model, and they were both uh, uh, perusing Alan Alda's new autobiography, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed, hardcover. Which I've now read twice. I've never read twice. Great book. It's a great book. Um, and we watch these two guys looking at it, and then go and both buy their own copy of it, and then they we bought, ju- yeah, they're, and they appeared to be as conjoined as two friends could be, and yet they bought their own copies. And then we sort of followed them to like a coffee shop where they sat down, and both sat at a table and read their 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 copies of Alan Alda's new autobiography. And we just it it clicked into this thing that both of us had been circling around this kind of guy, and we just watched them, and then we just sort of created a little, some voices for them, and um, and we started talking like them, and 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 basically have not stopped since. To, to some extent, I think it speaks to like how hard it is to be Alan Alda. Mm-hmm. That like yeah. everyone oh, yeah. loves Alan Alda. I don't think you guys don't love Alan Alda, we love right? Alan Alda. We love Alan Alda. We love Alan Alda. Alan Alda is great. Yeah, he's oh, the greatest. Uh, uh, when everything we do in Oh Hello is is kidding and deadly serious. Yeah, but but we the, love Alan Alda. The tricky bit about people who love Alan Alda is that it really takes a lot of charm and grace to pull off being that. Overeducated white male, mm-hmm. privileged, yeah, handsome. Yes, and George and Gill lack all of that charm and grace, <laughs> but uh, have all of the entitlement. Yes, uh, and I think, but Alan Alda is, I think, what they would have. Whenever we had, as soon as we started doing these characters, it was that was the that's the moment that everybody keyed in on these guys when we would say they're these Upper West Side sort of septuagenarian kind of guys. And uh, they have turtlenecks and blazers, and they're obsessed with Alan Alda. And that is the moment when everyone goes, got Oh, it. yeah, got it. Yeah. Got it. Know who they are. Um, he just symbolizes the, the height of that man, of, that, of that, that sort of erudite, overly educated man. And yet he himself is such a charming, loving, loving kind of generous soul. And also has talent, whereas yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, George and Gill and many of his fans probably don't. Yeah. Let's hear some more of George and Gill. And uh, my guests are John Mullaney and Nick Kroll, the creators of these two characters, who are coming to Broadway in their hit show, Oh, Hello. So this is the two of them. They're headed to dinner with Gill's ex-wife. Mm. I'm scared that she's going to want to get back together with me. I don't want to leave my single bachelor lifestyle. Well, let's just make a good impression. Oh, right? then thank God we brought the cheese. its yes. When a problem comes along, you, you must cheese it. Cheese it. Cheese it. Anyway. All right. Okay, I'm coming. Ah. 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 Franny 
Francine Faisan. Come here. All right. Actually, it's okay. Francine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Bet it is. Francine Faisan. How are you? Good to All see right. you, George. So you still use Faisan. You kept his name. It's always been my name. Yeah, yeah. No, I took her name. I didn't give oh. it to him. He just took it. So what's your real name? Gil Cosby. These are here. Oh, lovely. Thank you. You didn't have to do that. White cheddar. White cheddar, although if I remember correctly, there was a point where you liked that black cheddar, didn't All right, we're not talking yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, a little. All right. Luther was his name. What was his name? Oh, Luther not... was his name. <laughs> uh, uh, that's Julie White, by the way, famed like Broadway <laughs> actress, Tony Award-winning actress, Julie White. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedians Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. They're the creators of Oh Hello, which makes its Broadway debut at the Lyceum Theater on September 23rd. I, I remember reading somewhere in an interview, I, I, I want to say it was you, John, who said that one of the things that makes these characters more universal than they should be, mm-hmm. um, that one of the things that extends them beyond people who immediately recognize the poke boat advertisement that runs on the side of every page of the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it, We are at this point where the straight white male mm-hmm. is fading from cultural centrality. You know, right. The hegemony of the straight white male yeah. is, is riding off into the sunset and it's just fun for us all to laugh as it goes. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's not always going quietly, but it's like, yeah, it's like the madness of King George. Like, he's in charge, but irrelevant and uh, and going insane, as we can see now. But, yeah, it just like these guys came up in a time of, like, both getting credit for being feminists while talking down to women and cheating on them constantly. Uh, they just kind of had it all and they're experts and and that is you're not you're not guaranteed the title of expert by just being a straight white man how how do you feel about that particularly john given you know the the first time i saw you do stand up in new york the thoughts that i had were you we were both young those were our salad days mm-hmm. yeah um but I maybe soup, maybe you were 24 or 25 and i was 27 or something and um I remember thinking two things. One, these are some of the best jokes that I've ever seen a stand-up do and some oh, of the best specifics you. ever. I mean, I was just in awe. Thanks. I was frankly frustrated by it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was, like, this guy looks like he could put on a blue blazer and it would be the right thing for him to wear. It would be. Like, not a subversion of blue blazers or like you right. look like a handsome, square, genial white man uh-huh. times a thousand. Uh, there's a reason I look like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, it's something that you must be aware of every time you step on stage, because when that audience sees you, at least before the days when your reputation preceded you, what people saw was a handsome, genial white guy, which is a really particular thing, especially in a comedy context. Well, I don't know if they thought handsome, but young. I mean, I looked very young. But, yes, I, I couldn't... I would say handsome. Thank you. I would say handsome, too. Uh, <laughs> but I, of course, have to buffer it, you know. But mm-hmm. I, I looked great. You did. Uh, you still do. You know what? Yeah. 
Thank you. I was just thinking. I was just sitting here thinking. Look at that handsome. Look at that handsome guy. guy. Thank you so much. Yeah, like it's a, a it's a prescription shampoo, by the way. It's a dandruff <laughs> prescription shampoo. Great. Um, but yeah, like it's a bit of an affect, but it's also not. It's cultivated. Like I was so interested in that's in Jack Benny and Burns and Allen and Johnny Carson and all that stuff from a young age. So it's not my generation. So it, it's a bit of an affect, but at this point, it's not. I don't think. I sort of. A long time ago, just wanted to live like uh, a comedian in the late 50s and do. But John is a personally, I mean, he's he's got an unbelievably sharp killer wit, um, but he is a very nice, polite young man. Um, and so when you, you say that as someone who's three years older than him. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but who life has ravaged. Uh, no, but well, he, you were a senior when I was a freshman. I, was a I feel like that that never goes away. Yeah, so I I cast him in the improv group when I was a senior and he was a freshman. But I and and it was I was shocked at how, uh, uh, I mean, not shocked, but he's he is a very nice, polite young man, and I, I um, and then and yet the the mind is incredibly agile and and dangerous when when let out, and I think that's partly what. Uh, George is for John is is an extension uh, to allow a different part of his personality out that isn't part of what his stand up persona is or what his day to day life is as a as yeah. a as a nice young man uh, traversing the world. Yeah, as someone who's uh, kind of always running for president of everything, <laughs> uh, George is a good outlet for all my actual negative, sometimes bitter, <laughs> uh, sometimes just garbage thoughts. So why do you think it is that? You guys have taken your not insignificant gains in the fame department over the last five to ten years. Why are you taking this opportunity to bring these weird characters that you did together as a goof in an alternative stand-up showcase in a small venue in New York ten years ago to Broadway? Well... Why did we want to keep doing it? Because it's the most fun thing. It's the most fun thing. Mm-hmm. I am very self-critical about all the comedy that I do. I think Oh Hello is perfect. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I crack up every time I watch clips. It's really gross, but I genuinely, I'm like a huge fan of Oh Hello and mm-hmm. George and Gill. Mm-hmm. There's no, I have no inner critic about it. I'm like, oh, that was great. That was mm-hmm. hilarious. And we're like making jokes about yogurt and stuff. Uh <laughs> So the why of do we keep doing it, it's the most fun. It's the most fun ever. And then that we were able to do it off-Broadway and tour it and do some stuff with it was just a win-win. Yeah, I think I think it was it's, – it genuinely has always been the most fun thing, so we've never abandoned it. Uh, it seems to be an endless well. It seems to – we keep growing it and, and exploring more of these guys, and they don't seem to be – They're not going away. They're not going away. Um, we talk like them – if we were at lunch, we would be talking like that. Yeah. Not as a bit. Joe, you're coming off of the absolute worst failure of your life. You're not exactly sure what your next move's going to be. Then your friend shows up, and he tells you, what you need to do is dust off a joke that the two of you invented in a bookstore when you were in your mid-20s. Coming up, we'll hear why this was exactly what John Mulaney needed after his experience on a profoundly ill-fated sitcom. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Soylent, the nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. And now introducing Coffeeist, a balanced breakfast blended with lightly roasted coffee and a hint of chocolate flavor. It's an energizing morning meal, too convenient to skip. And if you need another reason to feel good about squeezing breakfast into your day, for every case of Coffeeist purchased, a meal is donated to those in need through the World Food Program USA. Receive 10% off your first subscription order at Soylent.com with the discount code NPR. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. As summer winds down, it's a great way to find new shows and stories for the beach or your autumn road trip. Great hand-curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it on your app store, NPR O-N-E. Hello, and welcome to Podphone. What type of podcast are you looking for? You have chosen funny podcasts about bad movies. Rated R. May we recommend... The Flophouse. Three friends talk about bad movies and make each other and you laugh. Rated R. The Flophouse is playing at your ears. If you download it right now or whenever. Rated R. To purchase tickets to The Flophouse, you don't need to do that. Just download it. The Flophouse. Rated R. For nudity, I guess. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the comedians John Mulaney and Nick Kroll. They created the Broadway show Oh Hello. It debuts in a month or so. Later on, the stars of Oh Hello, characters Mulaney and Kroll created, Gil Faison and George St. Geegland, will stop by and give us a little biographical detail. John, you did a sitcom called Mulaney. Uh-huh. That was probably one of the most critically reviled sitcoms of the <laughs> yeah, last few years. It was despised. It yeah. was despised. Um, it's so funny. And it got an eleven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Did you know that? Is that where it is? Eleven percent. Is um, that where it is? There's new reviews coming in. <laughs> and people hated it so much. I know. I remember. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you guys have, if part of what drives your commitment to these characters is a personal resonance to you of like, these guys are such imposters. They talk all this game about their artistic ability. (laughs) They Mm -hmm. talk all this game, they do. (laughs) And there's nothing behind it. And I wonder if part of your connection to these characters is wondering whether you yourselves... Will I be the George St. Eagland of my, my y- comedic contemporaries? Well, yeah, or just whether you're a, whether you're an imposter and your successes are accidental and not the result of talent and your... Oh, sure. I think most people who achieve a little success have that gnawing fear that they're a fraud. As, as much as it sucked, I knew... At my core, it was very funny how badly it was going. <laughs> it was very funny. You know, it was like... It's I, funny I now. Like, yeah, yeah, there were slap-happy moments yeah. during it. Yeah. But now it's very funny. But I remember sitting with John just as after having dinner with him, just as, as the 
the reviews had come in and it was clearly not going to be. I had all the newspapers out, <laughs> that checking was, them furiously, spread across it was across not desk. going to work. I mean, uh, two things. One, just in, in to answer your question, uh, partly is like I would think some of the best artists feel like frauds all the time. Um, even though they know what they're doing, they're working towards this thing that they're doing, they can't stop it. Um, but I think there is feelings of like, am I fraud? Am I George or Gill? Or am I something else? You're speaking very vaguely. I'm wondering if you're feeling, if you felt sure. that. Well, I had finished my show. I'd done three seasons of my show, and I had made a movie. And the movie had been decently received and not as well received as I had hoped. My show was uh, critically a success, but had never like in comparison to, like, Schumer or Key and Peele, had not been nominated for an Emmy, hadn't won a Peabody. So anything like that that I felt like I wanted. And so even though my shows, had my things had been successes, they weren't to the level of success that I thought I, that I wanted. And I similarly had people telling me to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I remember sitting there with... The, <laughs> With dinner with John and it had all come out and I was like, well, what as a friend can I do to help my friend? Um, and and I can say, oh, man, this sucks. But the only thing I could do to truly help my friend, and I meant it, was to say I want to work with you. Because that I think is the fear is is, and I can't speak to what John's fear is, that you have this fear if something fails that people aren't going to want to work with you, that you're done, that it's over. You do have a stink for a couple weeks. You do. Yeah. It, you do have because people like you know think it's like SARS or something. Like they're like, am I going to catch that? <laughs> and I think it was so for me. It was like the only thing I can do as a guy who's been his friend and collaborator for years was be like, all I want is to get to work with you. Um, and I meant it genuinely, selfishly, because I think he's the the funniest dude. And I think that's what's in weirdly underneath all of George and Gill's stuff is that these are these two men who are. Uh, life partners they're st- i mean they're straight they're not gay um well, but all old men kind of become women <laughs> yes exactly as john says at the beginning of his show george st Geeglin, i'm uh what is it uh i'm neither jewish nor a woman but like many men my age i am somehow both <laughs> <laughs> um but it was i think the deep friendship there that is pervasive that is the, these men who are deeply connected to each other through thick and thin even though one is a horrible bully and one is a baby they need each other and and want to be with each other and realize how empty their lives are without one another uh, one th- what i did learn from george st Geeglin was uh george st Geeglin would blame other people if he had a failure mm-hmm. and i was like i was like no i made that show completely you know head to toe that was my thing so it was a swing and a miss, but like I can't be like you should have seen no the early drafts. Excuse me, <laughs> the, the early to the network suits whoever they are this week. Yeah, <laughs> it was like no, I swing and a miss. Same way I think oh hello is funny. I thought like this multicam would work, didn't? Yeah, it didn't. Well, what's the number? What is it? where is it on Rotten Tomatoes? It's at eleven percent. <laughs> okay, all I mean is like sometimes like. Don't don't be a George St. Giggling. Sounds like a not insignificant proportion of critics actually liked it. A not 11. I don't even know if it means 11% liked it. It might have been like 11% didn't weigh in. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm glad we score uh, movies and TV with a number, a percentage. That's very... That's how people feel. That's really well, artistic. And, I prefer Metacritic. <laughs> uh, I like a letter grade, too. Because that's, that's why I got into comedy is to get grades. 
I'm glad we go by percentages. I think it's very noble. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, joining me on Bullseye. Can I can I just quickly because this is my role within this? I'm just going to briefly pitch the actual show. George and Gil have written a play about getting kicked out of their rent control department in New York City. The play then breaks down upon itself. Um, it's an homage to Broadway and and all the tropes of. Uh, plays that we both love and despise. So I think both people who like theater and don't like theater at all will walk away feeling like they got their money's worth. I don't think anyone could be fooled into thinking, I mean, it's like a penny a joke, even at Broadway prices. It is so many jokes. (laughs) It is so many jokes. Even at Broadway, that's a great, well, that's a great... A penny a joke. Even at Broadway prices. Even at Broadway, at these prices? Yeah. My guests have been uh, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll. In just a second... Uh, the stars of the show, Gil Faison and uh, George St. Giegland, uh, will be on the show to talk a, talk a little bit about Faison. it. Wonderful. Faison. Faison. Forgive me. Gil Faison and George. He might get really spooked. St. <laughs> He'll hide under the chair if you don't get his name right. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Coming up, I'll be joined by Gil Faison and George St. Giegland, the stars of the Broadway show. Oh, hello. Their voices happen to sound a lot like John Mulaney and Nick Kroll's just doing voices. The show makes its debut at the Lyceum Theater on Broadway, September 23rd. George St. Giegland and Gil Faison are the stars of the new show, the stars and writers, I should say. That's right. Of yeah. And consultants. The new show on Broadway, Oh, Hello. Mm-hmm. Um, gentlemen, I've been a fan for a long time. Welcome to the show. It's, it's great to get to talk to you. You're welcome. W- wonderful to be here. You're welcome. So have you, is, has Broadway always been your goal? We've always been Broadway's goal uh, is how I see it. I think it's a culmination of sorts. There's been a great tradition of American theater, and we've been at a lot of it, uh, the second acts, because we sneak in during intermission. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a culmination, and it's a victory lap, and it's us saying to New York and to Broadway and to the world, you're welcome. You're welcome. And, you know, we've been... We've been great fans of Broadway ever since we moved to New York. And this is, ironically, somehow this is the first time, because we've done a number of different productions. We've made a number of Broadway quality plays that have, it's, but yet yeah. we've yet big to yet, be, yet to be on the big white way, the great white way. And so well, we did a Waiting for a Godot, Hello. Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, Annie Gets Your Gun, the musical? Yeah. We did Bernie Gets Your Gun. Starring Bernie Getz. About our dear friend, Bernie Getz. <laughs> Got it. Uh, we did Pugs, which is cats, but with pugs. Uh-huh. And the, these guys, I was so worried about them overheating with those lights. <laughs> but we're going to do a revival, which will be hard, because these guys are 18-year-old pugs. Yeah, you gotta, we got to get little, little dorgy stairs. Oh, so yeah, they, the they can't jump off the bed the same way anymore. No, we got to let them work goddamn on Goddamn hips. Was it difficult to write this play, to generate... The amount of material that a Broadway well, show requires. Well, it's interesting because it was a real, it was a real digging process. This plays a lot more autobiographical than yeah. some of our other works. Yeah. You know, it's kind of about our, it's kind of about our life experiences. Yeah, that's right. You know, because we all live, those little moments of life, those little moments. Uh, you know, a, a first job, a, a child bride. You know, these are the things that we wanted to draw around. Being and, too warm at a museum because you're wearing your winter coat. Yeah. Uh, being rejected from being a docent at a <clears throat> at a Trader Joe's. Um, these are the things that we go through uh, day to day. 
And, uh, you know, and, and also in this particular case, we had been, you know, we live in, uh, we live on 73rd in Amsterdam. And this is, we used to live all the way uptown at 73rd in Columbus. And so now we live at 73rd in Amsterdam. We and moved I, in town. And we moved in town. And, and you know, our building is, uh, has been ring controlled. We've been living in the same apartment for 40 years. And now they're, they're turning it over. And so we thought, this is ridiculous. We need we should write a play about this, about this rent-controlled catastrophe that they're taking away from us, you know. And that's, you know, this is where the play comes so from. So it's a political piece, you know. Every, you know, it's, it's, it's in line with a lot of the issue uh, dramas that are coming out now. And this is about something very serious, which is that we should be allowed to live on $6 a month uh, and not seek employment. Mm-hmm. Can can I ask you guys to Of dis- course, Jesse. Thank you. Can you can I ask you guys to describe I think you both have very distinctive personal aesthetics. Oh sure. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal looks? Sure. Well, I'm all circles. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I'm all circles and George is all angles. I'm all angles. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm I'm curtains. The way I I describe my clothing is wool kimonos. So uh, large shoulder uh, blazers, and it's all you don't realize this. People are so stupid, except me. When you get carpet laid, they cut some off, and you can make clothes out of them. And his shoes are from the hospital. My shoes are from the hospital because when I woke up there, I had these groovy shoes on, and I bolted, you know, because I didn't want to pay. This was before Obamacare. <laughs> And uh, my stuff is, I wear a leather jacket. I'm sporty. I'm more sporty. He's than the George. athlete of the two of yeah, us. Yeah, that's right, because I'll watch softball games in Central Park. So I'm sporty. And I wear a leather jacket that, you know, there's two different stories that that I'll tell about it, depending on, on, on who the company is. Uh, one is that I, uh, st- I I walked. They were shooting Major League Three in New York City, ill fated, and I walked into Tom Berenger's trailer and I stole his jacket. And that's one story I'll tell. And then the other is uh, is uh, from I was uh, I was cast to play a go kart in um, <laughs> an episode of Wings. And uh, and Stephen Weber had that leather jacket that was so famous, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 uh, and I and and the truth is is that I I I kidnapped Tom Berenger. Oh wow! So those are the two stories. It's it's technically kidnapping if you shut the door and says no one can leave. Yeah, I mean it wasn't a full. It know, wasn't a full kidnapping. It wasn't a. It wasn't a. Hog well, it wasn't tie- like a hog tie. Wasn't hog tied in a trunk with the boxes with the hearts on them, no. as we all know from me, you know movies. Mm-hmm. I uh, I know that you guys have a very special relationship with Alan Alda. Oh, I, oh sure. sure. The sure, great sure. movie star, the host of the greatest. Scientific American Frontiers, exactly. memoirist. Exactly, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about... Um, Where the case stands? Yeah. We are legally uh, not allowed uh, within three states of him, which was extreme. I think it was just because of what we said to the judge. Uh, what was what was it that you said to the judge? I said, your robe looks stupid. You know, wow. I bet your kids suck. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to give you a harsher sentence if you keep it up. And I went, by the way, these pitchers of water that you have at, at court, uh, it's lukewarm. Why don't we get some ice in here? Screw off. Guys, I don't want to get too heavy because mostly we're here to talk about your Broadway show, Oh Hello. Well, if you don't want to get too heavy, then you should be on a diet, a 70s diet. Yeah. The, the newest 70s diet. Yeah. Half a grapefruit, mm-hmm. 
a scoop of uh, uh, cottage cheese. And that's a 70s diet. And it's wear an all-gray sweatsuit and have little weights. And then lentils. You do lift lentils as the weights. And then you're going to want to eat tiger, tiger milk bars. And tab. <laughs> tab is very good for you. <laughs> well, look, we're prepared to answer anything. Sorry, so you didn't want to get too heavy. So what, what did you want to... What do you want to talk about? Yeah. My Lai Massacre? What? Well, the two of you are older than you used to be. I mean, we all are, right? We all are. But you guys we are getting... We all are in many ways. Getting now into your 70s, right? I think, sure, yeah. thank you. Do you ever think about death? Uh, always. I'm obsessed with death. It's my Jewish neuroses. You know, I'm obsessed with death. Uh, you know, and I, I use it every day to try to get women to sleep with me. Um, besides that, my body's in pretty good shape, you know. You are. Your last physical was, was pretty good. Yeah, because the body itself, the clothing covers my bruises. I'm heavily bruised. And it's not clear why. But I feel great. I feel like $100 every day. I, uh, you know, I grew up in a in a Dutch Presbyterian family. We, we were very repressed. You know, we didn't talk about death a lot. So for me, death is something that happened to three of my wives in the same way on the same staircase. And I've never been convicted of nothing. So no one can come after me. But I do. I am planning my funeral. Uh, it's going to be at a Lucille Roberts. <laughs> And Which is a women's it's gym. It's a women's gym. I don't know if, you, if your, your audience is familiar with Curves. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine, before Curves, there was one or two gyms in New York area called Lucille oh, Roberts. Roberts. Yeah, so picture a, cur- a Curves with an open casket of me embalmed, the way I look but embalmed, with open a, With a bunch of tens on Nordic tracks. Yeah. Can I ask you guys a question? Yes. I know that you guys love Alan Alda. Another one of my favorite actors is Elliot Gould. Oh, the best. A tremendous A talent. tremendous actor. How would you compare him to Alda? Well, you, you, you're talking about the brain and the brawn. Uh, Alan, the, the intellect, charms women with words. Elliot, the presence, the curly hair. Elliot, you know, there's a, Elliot has a wonderful uh, safari-esque coat that we've coveted for a long time. Yes. It's gorgeous. Uh, Safari is a good choice if you're thinking like, you know, what should I wear uh, as uh, as a man maturing? Safari. I mean, Peter Bogdanovich got in on it early. And different from Peter Bogdanovich, which is a, 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 a dog director. It's a hound dog director. Yeah, um, who's quite uh, powerful and and loved. I I mean, it's not well. He, much. he loved puppies. Yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, the hound dog, had a good run. And now he's sort of professorial and talks about film. Guys, um, I'm I'm so excited about your show, Oh Hello, we coming know, to Broadway. We know. It's very exciting. Is this something that you expected or is this did this come as a surprise to you? That late in your lives you would find yourselves on The Great White Way. Well, what we were told we were going to go to the Great Way. We thought that it was uh, originally that it was uh, like the the gay arm of the Ku Klux Klan had finally established a theater presence. So we were excited about that opportunity. Um, like how there's gay Catholics. Yeah. Yeah, there might be a fringe group. Great Way. So we were excited about that. And then they found it and we said, oh, it's going to be Broadway. We said, oh, even better. 
And then I was like, where? You know, what are we talking here? 19th and Broadway? I'm fine with that. Yeah. You know, one of those stores that sells big T-shirts and then like boom boxes and stuff? No, it turns out right on Broadway. I mean, ni- next to Tim Square. Lyceum Theater. The Lyceum, Lyceum Theater. The Lyceum Theater. One of the, and we must give a shout out to the Schuberts. The, uh, you know, the Schubert family. And, uh, you know, and so we're not a, we're not surprised to, you know, never have a play. Normally we do our plays in other venues. Sure. We'll do them at uh, 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 weather-related crisis centers where people are trapped or, like, as a skit during break at AA. So, you know, this was a different opportunity for us to be on Broadway. Sure, and have lights and all that crap. Yeah, know. but it's really six dozen of one half of another. So, um, so we're, we're very excited. We're not surprised. You know, this is no. You know, because we we learned early on, you must visualize your success. You know. Yes. And we've done that. Um, we've talked about it, and now it's happening as we had always prophesized. Yeah, I. You know, I said I am going to have. A medallion with different birthstones on it. And then I finally got it. Yeah. And it's like no, no, Nostradamus, otherwise known as Lou Holtz, had always predicted that oh, those those guys will be on Broadway. So. Well, George St. Giggling, Gil Faison, I'm excited about the show, and thanks for coming on uh, both sides. Jesse, thank you so much. Jesse, thank you. And we want to, uh, just as a little thank you to you, we're going to send you a link to StubHub so you can buy like a $1,000 ticket. And, Thank you. And and to all those people listening to NPR, you know, or listening as podcast, and whether you're in a a boxy Volvo or a, a kitchen with a worn counter, we 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 welcome and love all of you. We love you, and we hope that our mouths were dry enough for you, and we hope that you heard our white weird tongues. And maybe you're scooping up the last fingy full of hummus. With a baby carrot or your fingy, we deeply love you and we agree with you. Maybe you have a weird little pink radio like the woman in the original Ghostbusters in your bathroom and you're, you're brushing your teeth and you're listening to us. And our breath is as bad as you would imagine. <laughs> Nick Kroll and John Mullaney are the creators of Oh Hello. They're bringing Gil Faison and George St. Giegelin, the stars of Oh Hello, to the Lyceum Theater on Broadway. It starts September 23rd. Coming up... Jazz great Ayrton Moreira will tell us what it was like to move from Brazil to New York with no money, almost no friends, no musical connections, and basically just a suitcase full of percussion instruments. I don't want to give away the ending, but it worked out for him. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. With the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro behind us, Latino USA takes a look at the more than 300,000 Brazilian Americans who live in the United States. For many of them, it's unclear exactly where they fit in the American tapestry. And they ask this question, are Brazilians Latinos? Find Latino USA now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Mugs, shirts, stickers, patches, tanks, and more are yours for the purchasing at MaxFunStore.com. Hey, you already love the podcasts, so why not take this to the next level and outfit your home and bod with our merch? MaxFunStore.com. Because if you have to wear a shirt, it should be one of ours. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So Downbeat Magazine is a big magazine in jazz, and it has a reader poll. And every year for the last 40 years or so, 
they've asked their readers to pick a best percussionist. And out of those 40 and a couple times, 20 times, the winner has been my guest, Ayrton Moreira. He started playing jazz in his native Brazil in the 60s. He moved to New York just in time to help create jazz fusion. He played with Miles Davis on the Bitches Brew Sessions. He played on the first Weather Report albums. He helped bring jazz into a new era. Here he is, playing with Davis from those Bitches Brew Sessions. Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, Tina Turner, Stan Getz, Count Jader, Cannonball Adderley, Santana Grover, Washington, Depeche Mode, Jobim, James Taylor, Astrid Gilberto, Freddie Hubbard. I could literally spend the rest of the time that we have in this interview listing Ayrton's credits. And, and I'll give you dollars to donuts that he played with at least one act that you love. I mean, you know this Paul Simon song, right? You hear the sound that is, I don't know, like something that you wouldn't expect to hear on a Paul Simon song? Uh, that's Ayrton. Ayrton, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, actually, uh, I'm glad that you guys called me and got me out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, I'm thank glad you to, very much. I'm glad to entertain you, <laughs> Good. if only for a few minutes. So um, the drum that you were playing on that last song that we heard, the Paul Simon song, uh, is this it, it is a very, you know, it's one that you've played throughout your career. It's one that is one of the great percussion instruments of Brazil. Can you tell me what it is and how you play it? It's, uh, it's called cuica. And cuica is uh, is made of metal, and it's got uh, a bamboo stick inside. And so then you, you know, you you kind of hold, you know, on that stick, and uh, and then you pull and push and pull, push and pull, and it goes. When you came to the United States in the '60s, how many instruments did you bring with you? Probably about fifty. <laughs> First, I I was looking for some Brazilians, you know, like a Brazilian band, and there were no Brazilian bands in New York. And, and so there was no band to play. And so I tried to play with, uh, with the people that they were playing salsa and rumbas, you know, from uh, Puerto Rico, from Cuba. But they wouldn't let me sit in because they are very particular about the... Uh, you know, their rhythms and how it goes. And one day uh, I was running around, you know, like walking around the village, and I heard a band that was jazz band, and I asked them if I could sit in. And they said, yeah, sure. And so I played a whole set, and they liked it. I, you know, I played with, you know, over there for, for months, and then little by little I start playing with other Leaders, you know, like Cannibal Adderley and Lee Morgan, Ron Carter, you know. I mean, it's amazing to me to think of you just wandering around New York City looking for gigs and 
trying to convince people to let you play with them without really being able to speak English. Yeah, it was that was very hard. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your life in Brazil before you came to the United States. Uh -huh. What kind of music did you listen to when you were a kid, or did you grow up playing? Uh, well, when I was a kid, there was no TV yet, you know, in uh, in Brazil. So was the radio. And the radio, they played everything, not jazz, actually. Maybe sometimes, like, big bands. And then later on, when I moved to a, you know, we moved to a bigger place, things were a little more advanced, and so I started to listen to, to other kinds of music, but always uh, Brazilian, Brazilian music. What kind of Brazilian music? Well, samba, you know, uh, marcha, you know, like it's a carnival rhythm. When did you first hear jazz? In Sao Paulo. There's a friend of mine that uh, he was a great jazz player, trombone player. One day he was listening to uh you know, uh, a record, and uh, and it was called Train. And so it was beautiful, just beautiful. That I opened up for jazz right there. What how, What do you remember feeling when you when it opened up for you that way? It's like a flying an airplane, but the first time. Yeah, and sitting you know with the pilot, and. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I was uh, one of the good players, good jazz players in Brazil. Until uh, when I came to the states, uh, then I realized that I, I was not that great. <laughs> I was like, what? And I remember one time that uh, when Shorter called me, because you know I, I met him through Walter Booker, he's a bass player. Uh, with Cannibal Waterly at that time. And uh, and he invited me to play on this album, Supernova, that uh, was a beautiful album. So they set up microphones all over the place, you know, all over the studio. It was a big studio. And uh, I was earlier. You know, I arrived earlier. There was nobody there yet. And I, I was talking to the sound engineer. There was somebody playing drums there who was real good. And uh, Jacques DeGenet was, you know, he was playing drums at that session. So uh, so I thought, wow, you know, Jacques DeGenet, he plays real good. So I asked him, I said, that's Jacques DeGenet, right? And he said, no, no, that's uh, the piano player, Chick Corea. So <laughs> it was like blank, and and I was like totally scared. I I didn't want to play there anymore. When when was it that you felt like you were a jazz player and you should be there? Mm. I was playing with Chick Corea and Return to Forever, the original Return to Forever.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is jazz percussionist Ayrton Morera. He's played with many of the biggest names in jazz, including Miles Davis. When did you first meet Miles Davis? Uh, in a recording session. Uh, he called me to record, not him, but his manager. He called me to record it with, with Miles. First, I thought it was, you know, somebody was just turning me on. <laughs> and then the guy said, no, no, this is, this is real. Uh, it's going to be Monday on CBS Studios. Blah, blah, blah. This is the address. So then Monday, I went, I went to the studio. And it uh, was all set up already. And I put my percussion on the side. And we start playing. And then after two hours, then Miles, Miles said, okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. And he said, it sounds like <laughs> I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was Miles, you know. <laughs> but then about three days later, his manager called me again and said, okay, we're going to record again. That was on the album uh, Beaches Brew. Uh, which was like a turning point in jazz. So then after that, that, that week, he told me, well, we're going to Washington, D.C. And so I went and we played Washington, D.C. After the two weeks, he gave me 500 or $600. $600. And then uh, I was playing with Miles Davis. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, Okay, beautiful. <laughs> it's on now. Yeah, and uh, but he never hired me. You just sort of didn't get asked to leave. Yeah, and eventually it. some money started showing up. Yeah, yeah. Somebody called me from you know California because they had a band here, and you know it was a famous band. I don't have to say the name of the band, but I said, okay, you come here and play with us. I'll give you some good money, and we'll get a. We get a house for you with swimming pool. So I was tempted, you know, to to come here. And I said, "Yeah, Miles, I I gotta talk to you." And he said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Well, I got a call from California, and uh, I want to know if if I'm playing with you." And he said, "Well, did you play yesterday?" And I said, "Yeah." Are you playing tomorrow? Yeah. So he said, so? <laughs> so was it. <laughs> so I, you know, I went to the phone again, like, uh, and I called and I said, man, I can't do that because I'm playing with Miles Davis. <laughs> Woo-hoo. That was beautiful. You know, I was thinking about, I don't know if you saw, there was this movie that came out about Brian Wilson last year. I liked it a lot. And half of this movie is about them recording pet sounds you know the great beach boys album and there's this moment in the movie where brian wilson wanders out of the studio and he's like sitting on the hood of a car outside the studio and there's this guy from the wrecking crew the band that played on the album sitting next to him and you know brian wilson says i don't know you know i don't know what to do. maybe i'm maybe i'm a hack or something like that and the guy sitting next to him says the guy from the you know the bassist from the wrecking crew is a lady but this guy who is something in the wrecking crew uh-huh. uh, says to him, you know, I think you're really changing things with this record. And hearing you describe that Bitches Brew session, I wondered if there was a moment where 
you were like out back behind the recording studio smoking a cigarette with Wayne Shorter or whatever. And uh, one of you said to the other, uh, I think maybe we're changing jazz right now. <laughs> no. No, we just we never really thought about that we're changing something. And uh, I think Miles did. Miles did. One of the things that I read you saying that, that playing with Miles Davis taught you was the power of not playing. And one of the things that a percussionist is often asked to do in a song is, give me a little something here. Let's, you know what I mean? Like, give it, let's, we want a little effect. We don't want something neat in there, you know? Yeah. So was it scary to learn to... To not play. Yeah. Uh, no, not really. The sound of silence, <laughs> you know, that is a sound. I mean, if we, if we get, you know, if we uh, keep quiet right now, there's going to be a sound here anyways. See, Because sound is energy. And uh, it's everywhere. But in reality, it's a, it's a matter of, like, respect and courtesy. And uh, and musicality. That's it. It was your wife who first brought you to the United States, right? Yeah, I was almost nineteen. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I came here just to, you know, to check it out. Can you imagine telling the eighteen-year-old version of you in Brazil trying to decide whether to come to the United States? If you get on that airplane, you'll have. 50 years of music and 50 years of love. Uh, no, I didn't think like that. I thought I was coming here and staying for a month or two, and then we would go back together. But, you know, it didn't happen like that. <laughs> All of a sudden, everything changed. You know, you know, we're still here. Well, it worked out pretty good. Yeah, I think so, too. Ayrton, thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listening. Whoever is listening to this, uh, it's a pleasure. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. So what exactly is rapping? It's talking, right? Like poetry over music, something like that? It kind of isn't because... The poetry of rap is more music than it is poetry. I mean, not that the words aren't important. It's just that they're chosen as much for how they sound as how they read. Actually, more, usually. Rap has a rhythm. There's a sort of conversation with the beat. Think about it this way. A rap has three basic qualities. Rhythm, language, melody. Usually that last one's less important. But in 2016, now in hip-hop, that melody part is actually more important than ever. The obvious example of this is Kanye West. A few years ago, he started very freely mixing rapping and singing in his music. Or at least kind of melodizing his rapping with a computer. See, I can have me a good girl and still be addicted to them hood rats. That same line, 
extends out through this guy called Future. He's an Atlanta rapper, and he destroys his own voice with software, but also with vocal technique. He whines and mumbles and sings through lines that leave you feeling kind of woozy and confused and transfixed. And all of that brings me to the guy I actually want to talk about and the song that right now I love the most. The guy's name is Designer. It's a new single. It's called Timmy Turner. It's this incredible mix of elements. The drum is a very familiar boom and crack that's driven Southern hip-hop for like 20 years. Surrounding his rapping or singing are this wild barrage of vocal noises. And that vocal, it's like nothing else you've ever heard, and it's like so many things you've heard before. Timmy, Timmy, Timmy Turner. People wish you for a burner. The king ain't right and wrong. You know I'm the soul in the furnace. He pushed him up easy. How they watch you, but they never be too bad if you're wildly. King ain't right and wrong. You know I'm the soul in the furnace. My friend Jay Smooth remixed the vocal into some Ladysmith Black Mombazo, the uh, legendary South African vocal group. And it actually fits kind of perfectly. But back to the record. You might not even be able to understand the lyric. It's about a kid on the street, hopeless, headed for hell. It's a classic hip-hop trope. It runs through some of rap's darkest, most existential records. Cool G Rap, Scarface, The Clips. For designer, that beautiful little bit of rap singing turned in on itself reflects that feudal loop of the game. The song reminds me of a sort of soulful Steve Reich. This little piece of melody pulled and stretched as it's repeated. Just this little bit of pain, this little warning. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Sung and resung. The musical manifestation of the trap. The lyrics are almost irrelevant. I mean, there barely are any lyrics. You can barely hear the words. It's just this loop of pain. I'm old, so it reminds me of a big boy lyric from the 90s about selling drugs. Now you're back at the trap. Just that. Trapped. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci, our production assistant Christian Duenas, and our senior producer is Colin Anderson. We have a brand new production fellow this week, so let's give a warm welcome to Kara Hart. Welcome, Kara. 
latest member of the Bullseye Buds. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to him. Thanks also to the band The Go Team and to their record label, Memphis Industries. They gave us our theme music that you hear at the top of the show. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted this week by one of our favorite people, upcoming Bullseye guest, writer Margaret Wappler. Hey, Margaret, what's popping on Pop Rocket? Uh, basically, we took all these fantastic questions from the listeners on the Facebook page or Twitter for our mailbag episode. Sounds fun to me. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.